Hello, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. Uh, we are a podcast that looks at the historical context of the Bible. It's sort of the, uh, what can the Bible teach us about ancient history? And what can ancient history teach us about the Bible? I am Dave Roos. I'm one of the hosts. I am a journalist. And we are here with my awesome co-host, Helen Bond. She's a uh, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh. And uh, hello, Helen. How's it going? Hello, Dave. It's good. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I'm excited mm. because we have one of your colleagues here with us. We have Matthew Novenson, um, but he's going to be talking to us about Paul. So hello, Matt. How's it going? Uh, it's going all right. Thank you both for having me on. Yeah. Pleasure. So, like I said, we're, we're, we're talking about Paul. Um, I'm amazed it's taken us this long, just even a few episodes in, to get to you know, one of the most important figures in the New Testament, one of the most important and you know, somewhat controversial at times figures in, uh, in Christianity. And we're going to dive into it. Let me just give you a little background on Matt, our guest. He is a senior lecturer in New Testament and Christian origins, also at the University of Edinburgh with, with Helen. And he's the also the director of the Center for the Study of Christian Origins. And then most importantly for us, he's got a new book. His book is called Paul, Then and Now, and that came out uh, in 2022. And uh, he's also the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Pauline Studies. So we got the guy on Paul to talk about Paul. And we're very excited. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's start with kind of what, you know, how we know what we know about Paul. Like, what are the the sources, you know, that we could look at about Paul? I know that, you know, we have all the his epistles, all of his letters, um, and then he shows up in Acts. But not even all of those letters are actually written by Paul, right? Historians kind of aren't sure about some of them. What's what's the story there, Matt? Yeah, Paul's a, a, he's in a slightly different category this way than some of the other famous figures from the New Testament, including ones I think you've talked about on the podcast before. I mean, right? So Jesus or John the Baptist, for instance, mm. didn't didn't write anything that's that has come down to us anyway. So we're entirely reliant on stories about them. Uh, for Paul, there's plenty of, of plenty of stories about him, uh, both within and outside the New Testament that are second or third or fourth hand. But we also have uh, at least some texts that are plausibly from his own hand, yeah. right? Uh, letters, as you say. Uh, now, the problem is there are letters of Paul that are almost certainly not written by Paul as well, mm. uh, so that are sort of uh, falsely attributed to him. And, and sorting out which is which is, is not entirely, it's not simple, mm. but uh, it is interesting and, and important for historical purposes that you have in Paul a figure from whom we might have some writings from him uh, rather than just indirect testimony. Yeah. And so how many, like how many of the letters can we, the scholars think for sure he wrote? Uh, the... The short answer, and it's always more complicated than this, but the, the, I mean, the short answer that most scholars would give you, uh, and 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 it's it's a reasonable answer, is seven. Okay. Uh, there are thirteen letters of Paul 
maybe 14 uh, attributed to him in the New Testament because the letter to the Hebrews does not have an author's name on it, but Mm. in Christian tradition, it was uh, uh, attributed to Paul. Uh, So 13 or 14 in the New Testament, plus more outside the New Testament, have Mm. Paul's name on them. There's a third Corinthians that's not in the New Testament, but that is attributed to Paul later. There's a, a whole series of letters between Paul and Seneca, the Roman philosopher, uh, also not real letter, not, not, uh, authentic letters, yeah. but so there's lots of letters of Paul, but of all those seven have a pretty good case that they, uh, come from him and his immediate circle in his lifetime. And then uh, we should say that, you know, we, we think that these letters are the first, they're the oldest, right? These are the earliest writings in the new Testament are, are Paul's letters, right? Yeah, that's a, that's one really interesting thing about him is, you, uh, you know, if you start teaching or th- talking your way through the New Testament, you often start with John the Baptist or Jesus, who are the sort of the earliest figures we meet. But actually, the stories about them are all later than the letters mm-hmm. of Paul. So uh, the letters of Paul are definitely the earliest texts that we have within the New Testament or anywhere from the early Christian movement. And. And then, like, and obviously, they we have stories about Paul. Like, so we have we have Paul's words in his letters, and we have stories about Paul in Acts. But when when was Acts written down? When do we think that came in the chronology? So uh, there's some dispute about it. I don't even. I'm actually. I'm not entirely certain if even Helen Ball and I think the same thing about this. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I I am of the view that Acts is quite late amongst the New Testament documents, because I think there's a very good chance that Luke, the author of Acts, has read Josephus mm. or has access to some of Josephus. Oh, wow. So if that's, if that's the case, you know, the letters, the authentic letters of Paul would come from the 50s, whereas uh, Acts was probably right around the turn of the second century, close okay. to the year 100. Well, I agree with you on that, Matt. So um, (laughs) that's amazing. I was kind of hoping we'd have a fight. We'd have a first story. No, I I think we probably knew Josephus too. I would would put Acts early second century. But but I think sometimes we forget just how amazing it is actually that we have even any letters actually Mm -hmm. from Paul, from, you know, one of these people who's so close to the heart of the Christian message Mm. and that's actually from him. I mean, it's, it's easy just to kind of, you know, you think, oh, they're just part of the Bible, but... To, to actually think of them as, you know, part of that social history of the very, very earliest days. It's really quite mm-hmm. amazing. Well, because, I, I mean, I, how how rare is it to have letters from anybody uh, uh, from this time? I mean, I guess, I don't know, like, like do, we, do, we, do other types of, of letters like this survive, or is this pretty remarkable? Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, we have quite a few letters from the ancient world. Um well, yeah, a, a whole lot of letters from the ancient world mm. in different forms. So, and s- some of them are highly literary, like, you know, like open letters nowadays. Mm. If you write an open letter for the newspaper. It's not a letter in the usual, it's not a, like a letter you'd send to your mother or, <laughs> you know, a friend, a friend abroad or something. And there are literary letters from the ancient world like that, that are written to be published. Mm. And then there are, uh, I mean, tons and tons of papyri uh letters like little scraps of Mm. the kind of thing you might just a few lines you know a single page or less that you might send off to your brother as he goes off to war or something Mm. those are quite a lot smaller than most of the letters of paul 
Although, I mean, the letter to the Philemon is uh, a letter of Paul is probably authentic and less than a page long. Mm. That's the kind of thing that you often find in uh, among documentary papyrus manuscripts. Uh, and so, but a lot of Paul's letters are kind of in between. You know, yeah. most of them are longer than a little one-off like Philemon, but they are not uh, as literary. They, they, pr- they probably weren't actually written for publication in a volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way, uh, yeah, some literary letters from the ancient world were. So what do we know about Paul? I mean, his sort of basic biography, he's he's from Tarsus, isn't he? I mean, does that tell us anything particular about him? Yeah, well, uh, that he's from Tarsus is actually one of these things that's disputed whether we know it, because mm-hmm. the only person who says it is Luke. Ah. So, uh, so again, the early... Paul in his letters never says where he's from at all. Uh, Luke says that he's from Tarsus, which is sort of right in the, if you're looking at a map, in kind of the the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, right sort of where uh, Syria Syria Palestine runs into uh, modern Turkey. Mm. Uh, But we, we, we only have Luke's word to go on for that. And Luke also says that Paul you know, had a youth or education in Jerusalem. Mm. And Paul never says that he had that either. <laughs> so we actually, uh, I mean, we don't know apart from uh, Luke. And then still later testimony. I mean, Jerome says his family came from from Palestine, from Galilee, actually. Oh, that's really uh, interesting. And, and it's Luke so, who says that he's a, a Roman citizen too, isn't it? I mean, is that is that disputed nowadays? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, it's, so there's a handful of things Luke says that Paul also says. That, I mean, it's possible both of them are wrong, but often those are kind of, you know, good corroboration. So Paul says he's a Pharisee, which is one of the schools or philosophies of ancient Jews. And Luke also says he's a Pharisee. So we have that on kind of, both of them say so. Paul says nothing about where he's from. Luke has a couple of accounts of where he's from. Paul says nothing about his citizenship. And Luke says he's a Hmm. Roman citizen. And that's the kind of thing that... I mean, it's not impossible that he was, but it's also the kind of thing Luke might say to give him a certain kind of honor uh, or status in the narrative. So it's the kind of thing historians would sit lightly to, Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of claim. Whereas that he's a Pharisee uh, or, you know, has a plausible claim to be, that's, you have it on pretty good authority, I think. And what about the idea that he's a tent maker? I mean, is that is that just in acts, and does that seem plausible? Yeah, that's a good question. That, that's another detail that's only in acts. Uh, so, Roman citizen, Tarsus, <laughs> tent making—all the so things we know this, about Paul are just disappearing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's only from acts. I don't know that any of them is not true. It's just that you have <laughs> to sort of consider the just consider the source. So, uh, I mean, by the time you meet Paul in the letters. Uh, I mean, all he seems to be doing is sort of traveling and announcing this message about Jesus. Now, he does say in some of the letters, he makes the point that he's not a con man. That And the way, the way his audience can trust he's not a con man is he reminds them, he said, I didn't take money from you, you'll recall. Hmm. I worked with my own hands to pay my way. Now, he doesn't say that that was in tent making or leather working, hmm. but he he claims to people who would be in a position to falsify it. He, he reminds them that, you know, some traveling teachers take money from their audiences. He, in some instances, has gone out of his way not to. 
but supposedly is is laboring to to uh you know uh for his own room and board mm-hmm. maybe it was tent making but uh yeah that no could fit couldn't it and and does he yeah. have a wife and family back in tarsus or galilee <laughs> or wherever it, i mean could you imagine a woman taking him on <laughs> yeah. yeah so i mean this is a bit disputed too because again there's although we know a lot about paul you know compared to what we know about most ancient people mm-hmm. there's lots of gaps so uh there i mean there's one place in the first letter to the corinthians where he talks quite a lot about marriage uh and sex and he says uh i don't have either <laughs> hmm. uh, well he says i don't have sex he probably implies also i don't have marriage uh, uh there is a debate whether he was at some past time mm. married and then uh, later in his life widowed or divorced or something else and no longer. Uh, but he doesn't expressly say that. So it's imaginable either that he was never married uh, or that I mean, it's possible, but there's no way of confirming that he was at some time past married. But he's quite proud of being a celibate by the time he writes yeah. Corinthians because he thinks that that's the best thing to be. Uh, and he commends it to his audience. He doesn't insist that they do it, but he said, if it's at all possible, everyone, he said, everyone should be celibate like me. Uh, so. Not, uh, not a great plan for a growing church. I mean, he was not, he was not thinking ahead. Um, <laughs> well, so let's, let's talk about, I mean, yeah. So he, he was he a tent maker? Who knows? But what about, you know, in, in, in acts and we, and, and he alludes to it in his letters that he, was this zealous figure before, you know, before he joins the Jesus movement, he was running around, you know, as like a Paul, the Christian hunter or like Saul, the Christian hunter, I guess. And he was grabbing people and binding them up and dragging them to Jerusalem. Was that a job of its own? Like, would that, was that something that people did within ancient Judaism? Was, was it somebody's job to go grab blasphemers and bring them to justice (laughs) or something? Yeah, no, not exactly. Uh, so this is a case where there's a little bit of overlap between what Paul says and what Acts says. So, um, and Paul speaks a couple times in the letters about his own past. And uh, he says that he was an exceptionally sort of serious uh, student of Jewish law and tradition mm. and so on. And this is, would be consistent, for instance, with him having been a Pharisee, a sort of a, a, a scholar mm. of uh the law, and in that connection, he also says uh, that he used to. The, the translation is tricky. He used to. It could be as minimal as I used to uh, sort of indict or bring uh, bring charges or prosecution against uh, the assembly of God, which means people who were following Jesus. Mm. Now, Acts says that he was committing violence. Mm against Christ believers, which Paul does not quite say. There's this verb that's often translated persecute mm. uh, that he uses, but it, it, it's not necess- it does not necessarily mean all that the English verb persecute means. So Luke certainly tells it in such a way as to make it a sort of, uh, well, a really violent scene. Mm. And, and, th- and so we can then go back and read Paul's letters and, and see that kind of scene in our imaginations, although it's not entirely clear, actually, that's mm what was going on, uh, partly because of, well, just as in the question you asked that the, the, the sort of social or, or, or 
religious infrastructure mm. to do what Acts describes doing is it's a bit un, uncertain. It's not as if it's not as if the high priest in Jerusalem was dispatching you know mm. religious police abroad <laughs> to to go. So that's another one of those stories we kind of take with a grain of salt. Although probably Luke is glossing what Paul says about his own past mm. that he used to indict Christ followers. So you said earlier that he was a, a Pharisee, and Pharisees are sort of a, 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 a group um, amongst Jews. But what exactly does it mean to be Jewish at this time? What do you think it meant to Paul to be Jewish? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is one of the terms, you know, the, the Greek New Testament term, or the Greek, the general Greek term in the ancient world is eudaios, which can mean Judean or Jewish. Mm. Uh I mean, Paul's Paul's an interesting case for that translation question because, uh, for most intents and purposes, he seems to be a diaspora Jew. So he is he is a Eudaios, you know, or Judean, but not someone who was born and raised in Judea. Um, so, which is why he's the kind of character for whom calling him a diaspora Jew is a really helpful and I think you know more or less accurate uh, historical label. I don't know that he's from Tarsus, but, uh, but he certainly is. I mean, everywhere he's attested in the letters is, uh, he, he says he makes a couple of visits to Jerusalem, but basically he's running around, uh, Italy, Greece, Macedonia, Asia minor, Syria. Um, he's rarely in Judea. Uh, he's always elsewhere and everything he wrote that's come down to us is in Greek. Uh, so he has a lot of hallmarks of a diaspora Jew like uh, like Philo, who lived in Alexandria in Egypt, or like old man Josephus, you know, <laughs> when he was living in Rome and writing in Greek. Um, so those kind of characters are an example of how Eudaios means something more like what we mean by Jew rather than Judean, because Eudaioi, people like this, live all over the ancient mm-hmm. world. There's a there's a very a vast diaspora, and and they write in the lingua franca you know, usually Greek, even if someone like Paul, you know, very well, uh, very well may have known Hebrew as well, but he writes in Greek. And I think it's because he's, he he belongs to the the broad Jewish diaspora. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting setting him in that, that sort of broader context. Yeah, I'm sorry, I was going to ask, yeah, what, what did that mean? Or do we know much about what it meant to be a diaspora Jew? Do we have only these couple figures like Paul who who we can look at or do do we know anything about how a Jewish person would have you know lived their life and worshiped and so far away from the center of, of Jewish life in in Jerusalem yeah uh, I mean most ancient you know in the ancient world in the in the early Roman period there were lots of ethnic diasporas abroad because this is what happens when mm-hmm. there's a when there's a uh, worldwide empire and, you know, lots of conquest and so on. People are moved around, you know, involuntary migration through war, enslavement and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's lots of ethnic diasporas in the Roman world as in our world. Um, and for many of those religiously, uh, you know, the, the, the cults of the gods could be ported around with the people to different places. But, and, but the Jews are, a bit unusual in this respect mm-hmm. in the ancient world in that with a few exceptions, basically uh, Jews all around the Mediterranean still recognize Jerusalem as the place where worship is meant to be offered to God. Mm-hmm. So you don't, 
again with a few small it's it's not the case that there's a temple to god in tarsus or in ephesus or in corinth or anything like that so diaspora jews like paul or like philo uh you know will have sent offerings sent money back to jerusalem for sacrifices to be made sort of you know participating by proxy in the in the worship of god back home and those who had the means, including Philo and Paul, actually seem to have actually made pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, when possible. Now, a lot of diaspora Jews surely weren't able to do uh, that, but 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 Paul did, both by his own account and uh, according to Acts and other stories. Um, so, was, religious life was still centered sort mm-hmm. of back in the homeland, um, although there was synagogue prayer and and study of the Torah and so on in diaspora cities oh. everywhere. And Paul, all signs are Paul participated in that uh, very fully. Okay. I mean, you use, you have a term in your book, um, you know, g- to live Gentilishly. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and Paul's famous, you know, for advocating, you know, for, for Gentiles to be included in this, in this kingdom. Um, but do we know anything about, yeah, well, what did you mean when you say that he might have lived Gentilishly in, in, the, in the diaspora? Yeah, yeah. So Paul uses this word in the letter to the Galatians, uh, referring to something he had said to Cephas or Peter, but basically saying, when, when you're here in Antioch, he says, you live Gentilishly, okay. uh, which is a literal English translation hmm. of the, the Greek word. Differently, he says, from how how. Jews back live back in Jerusalem, but that's I mean you can actually understand this on the analogy to diaspora cultures nowadays, right? If you're if you're in your own homeland and everybody is basically keeping the same customs, then then it works a certain way because you can be assured that you can get that food item, right? Or sure. that you can gather with other people doing the same thing. Whereas if in the in, in the diaspora you can't count on that, you might not be able to get you know that particular. Uh, food stuff for a particular traditional meal. You might not be able to gather with other people just like you, depending on where you are for a, uh, for an annual festival or something. Uh, so there's all kind of accommodations that people have to make in a diaspora situation. And I think Paul's referring to that. Um, it's, I mean, um, so, I, I mean, a really good example. And what I think that reference might mean in Galatians, uh, is something like, um, if you're, celebrating uh, a sort of, if, if you're bringing Jewish prayers or celebrating a Jewish meal or something, but you're in a building that has images of idols on the mm. wall or something, because it's Corinth, like most buildings do, right? Like uh, it, you're in spaces that are not Jewish spaces, they're Gentile spaces. Does that count as idolatry? Now, someone back in Jerusalem might say, yes, it does. You know, you're, that's, that's intolerable. But I think what's going on between Paul and Peter in, in that, that passage at Antioch is he's saying, that's living Gentilishly. It's making do with, you know, where, where you are. Mm. And for him, it doesn't count. That kind of living Gentilishly doesn't count as idolatry. They're, they're, they're doing what they can, coping in that uh, diaspora setting. It's a great word. <laughs> and so when, I mean, we... The, Paul has this experience, whatever it was, on the Damascus Road, and 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 Luke tells us about it three times, doesn't he? And um, when I was at school, or you know, early in my studies, I was always told this was Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. Um, 
I mean, is is it right to see that as a conversion? Is it is he going from this Jewish faith to a different religion, or or how how should we best think about what happens to him on the Damascus Road? Do you think? Yeah, I think for most purposes, it's not helpful to call it a conversion. Mm-hmm. I mean, one because uh, Paul doesn't call it that; mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't describe it that way. So that's a you know we're layering that on. So what what does he mm-hmm. say? So he says two things. He says that uh, when he had this vision of the risen Christ, he he, he calls it a call, like a, a, a vocation or a summons from, from God or Jesus. And he calls it a revelation, his word, like the same, the same word that is in the title of the book of Revelation. Mm. So he has a, a vision, an ecstatic meeting with a divine figure. Uh, so he does not, he, Paul never describes it in terms of what we usually mean by conversion is sort of departing one religion for another. Mm-hmm. Um, because conspicuously, Paul uh, doesn't have the words, and I don't think they've been invented yet, <laughs> remembering that he's the earliest, uh, the earliest source. He does not have the word Christian, mm. let alone the word Christianity. Mm. So there is, right, uh, he, he lacks the sort of concept for departing Judaism for something else. Um, now, it was certainly that that experience of his, that revelation or call, was entirely life-changing for him, apparently, but not in, in the way that a change of religions is <laughs> life-changing. I mean, he would say he had a direct encounter with a divine being. Um, but and and what he as a consequence he takes it that Jesus commissioned him to go tell all the gentiles about Jesus the son of the jewish god but that that's a vocation that's not a change of religion mm-hmm. um, so you would say that that paul saw himself as jewish to his dying day uh yes i think so and, and in this case well everything he says in the letters i think would jive with that and, I mean, Acts actually goes out of its way to say that's true. Mm. Mm. And it, so this is one of, those, one of those points on which the letters of Paul and the account in Acts agree quite, uh, I mean, virtually entirely, is that uh, both the letters in Acts say Paul is certainly uh, telling Gentiles that they don't have to become Jews in order to worship God and follow Jesus. But he himself, as a Jew, and other Jewish apostles and other Jewish followers of Christ, they carry on observing Jewish piety, uh, worshiping at the temple, um, you know, uh, sending offerings there when they're abroad. Uh, they practice Jewish piety, and they announce the son of the Jewish God to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are not both to Paul and to Luke X, those are not inconsistent things to do. So there's that famous question, isn't there? If if Paul had a son, would he have had him circumcised? Would you say yes? Yeah, that's right. I've used that as an <laughs> uh, as an essay question in class. I think we've yeah. all done that, haven't we? <laughs> that's right. But yeah, my answer would be, I mean, I think almost certainly yes. Uh, but because he's a celibate, uh, <laughs> uh, right, he would say mm. uh, that actually uh, Christ believers ideally are not in the business of having children, whether ones you circumcised or not. That's, that's the, uh, that's the really interesting twist. 
Awesome. Um, well, I, I, just a quick question. I mean, famously, he he is Saul, and then after this momentous occasion, he's called Paul. Are there other figures in in ancient history or in other you know books of the Bible even that like change their names when they have this some kind of ecstatic experience like this? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so this is a funny one because this is yet another thing that's only in Acts, and you wouldn't know it otherwise. So mm. in the letters. In the letters, he's only always Paul. There's nothing about him, uh, yeah, being, being called Saul. And then the the trick in Acts is, he, at first he's called Saul, and then latterly he's called Paul, and it kind of corresponds to his, you know, pre and post uh, revelation moments. But it's it's not crystal clear that mm. it's not as if when he meets Jesus, Jesus says, "And now I'm changing your name." Mm. Uh, it's not like Jesus does with Peter, where he says, you're Simon, but I am going to call you Peter. So there's mm-hmm. this moment of a name change. And there's an interesting theory that, um, I mean, it could be he was never called Saul, but Saul is a Hebrew name, right? Like mm-hmm. King Saul, Shaul. And it's possible, this is true of lots of diaspora Jews in the ancient worlds. There's actually a whole catalog of the evidence for this that Tal Elan has done for pe- diaspora Jews who have two names, a Hebrew oh, name. And then a, a sort of a local name, a mm. name that's uh, Greek or Latin or easily intelligible to, you know, uh, people nearby. So it, it could be that the Saul to Paul thing, if his if his parents gave him the the Hebrew name Saul, that there wasn't a you know a sort of religious name change, but that he always had a Hebrew name and he had a Greek name. Uh-huh. Uh, that's actually really common. Is in, there is there like a Greek correlate to Paul or? uh well paul is a greek name okay uh well although it's it's a, probably a latinism um i mean it's yeah uh so sometimes jewish diaspora uh people who had both a hebrew and a greek name they they had sound alike mm-hmm. names like uh like joshua and jason hmm. and it's possible that saul and paul are like that but but we don't know that um so, but at any rate, it's, we don't know that he had two names. And if he did have two names, it might not have been because of a religious change, yeah, yeah. but that he just had a, a Hebrew and a Greek name. Oh, awesome. Um, terrific. Well, I, this, I, I, this is a really big question and, and I'm hoping that you just can, can grab some, uh, <laughs> gems of insight out of your head. But, you know, since we are a historical podcast always interesting and interested in what these texts can tell us about the ancient world you know he's writing these letters to these very specific places these very specific communities are there nuggets of historical data that we can mine out of these letters that can tell us something about what life was like in these you know these different places in the mediterranean yeah yeah there is um i mean for the uh, you know relatively speaking the letters are short and mm-hmm. they're largely largely concerned with his religious and philosophical and moral teaching mm-hmm. so uh he doesn't sort of make a point of which is partly evidence that some of them at least are authentic letters he doesn't make a point of uh you know making some really obvious allusion mm-hmm. to a famous person or place in corinth or rome which which luke acts does more of right like mm-hmm. sort of signaling here's what i know uh you know about about this place. Paul does not do that. The, probably the the 
the most the, the best way to describe the historical information that uh, you we can glean from the letters is they are kind of kind of like the documentary papyri. They're the authentic letters are like ephemera from hmm. the just lived reality, lived religion in the ancient Mediterranean world. Um, so, for example, some recent research has used the letters of Paul alongside some other evidence of um, what Heidi Went calls freelance religious experts. So, <laughs> traveling teachers, they who in the in the Roman world they tend to come from east of Rome, and they they teach gods who become really popular to uh, yeah. amongst Romans. So, um, and we have sort of snippets of information about some of these people, especially in satires. So educated, educated writers like Lucian uh, think that these people are all charlatans uh, and that they're sort of making up gods and they're selling them to a Roman audience. Uh, hmm. And, and some of them probably were, and some of them also were probably completely sincere in thinking they were channeling a divine power and, you know, spreading a, a message to people who needed to hear it. Um, and some people might have been a bit of both. Uh, but Paul actually historically, he, he makes sense as a figure kind of like that, who if if you're looking from, if you're looking eastward from Rome or even from Corinth or something, and here's a Judean teacher who's telling you about a god uh, who's actually the high god over all the other gods uh, and who, you know, is going to judge the whole world very soon. And so you need to get your affairs in order. Um but if you trust his son, then uh, you know you'll be you'll be taken up into immortality when this time uh, comes, and uh, that that kind of you know market of religious ideas uh, we know from Paul and from other non-Jewish, non-Christian teachers uh, in that time and place. That's probably the the sort of closest fit uh, in in terms of historical context. But does but we don't have any commentary about Paul specifically, right? There's no Roman writers that said, "Oh, there's this guy Paul walking around," or he's, or he's, you know. No, not till much, not till much later. Until yeah, until uh, like third century philosophical mm. critics of Christianity okay. know Paul as a canonical figure. But no, in his and in his own lifetime, and even into the second century, the only people who know and talk about Paul are Christians for whom he's a hero. Got it. And so no, no, Joseph, Josephus does not mention him either. No, no, there's no, no Paul and Josephus. He's, <laughs> he's unknown to him. Yeah. We had another, uh, one of our podcasts on, uh, women in, um, sort of early Christianity and, um, and Paul came up of course in that and, 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 and he gets pretty bad rap, doesn't he? It's one that I don't entirely agree with, but I was just wondering what your take on, on that was. Do you think he's a, a woman hater what where would you put it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a so definitely Paul's. If people nowadays who know about Paul often know about him as mm. uh, associate him with misogyny and so on, especially kind of institutional Christian uh, misogyny, and that's entirely understandable. Um, and I mean, it's partly true, but it's also um, I, a lot of the impression people have is sort of. Not not everything done under the name of Paul, you know, historically should be laid directly at his feet. There's multiple issues here, right? There's whole there's centuries of Christian traditions of things done in the name of Paul that are always 
you know, have to at least partly be laid at the feet of the people who did them. Um, but, you know, there's, there's multiple layers here. Uh, the issue of authentic or pseudonymous letters comes up here because some of the most notorious uh, sort of women passages in the letters of Paul are probably from pseudonymous letters, mm-hmm. not authentic letters. So some Latter-day students of Paul writing in his name, uh, you know, had even more restrictive things about to say what, what uh, about what women Christ believers could do than Paul did. But I put it that way because Paul himself was also uh, uh, restrictive about what women Christ believers could do in some ways. So there are s- s- there's some modern treatments that have said, oh, uh, you know, these pseudo-Pauline letters are misogynist, but the authentic Paul is a feminist hero. And that's not quite right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Paul, well, Paul is an ancient person and <laughs> almost no ancient people are feminist in the sense we mean the term right yeah um, exactly i mean these are deeply patriarchal times aren't they so so yeah. where, where do you stand on uh, that little passage in 1 corinthians 14 you know where after happily telling women they can they can um prophesy in the churches in chapter 11 as long as they cover their heads suddenly in chapter 14 he's telling them to be quiet silent in the churches do you think that's a genuine bit from Paul? yeah well, there's two things to say about it. So, one, well, the letter is an authentic letter, mm-hmm. uh, but that is one of a very few places in the letters of Paul where there's serious textual disruption, like the longer endings of Mark's mm-hmm. gospel. So the manuscripts of Paul's letters, they don't, they don't change too much in, like, in terms of whole passages being added. But that one passage, there's disruption in the manuscripts, and that could be a smoking gun that something's been interpolated. But it's the, the manuscript evidence is not as bad as in the endings of Mark's gospel. Uh, and I, there's a lot to uh, a, a solution proposed uh, by Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza that said, actually, the, the way those two passages could work together is, uh, I mean, as you know, there's one word in Greek that could mean woman or wife. And Schusler Fiorenza argued that Paul says the women can prophesy, but by that he means other celibates ah, like him. Right. But that, but that wives, because he says in chapter fourteen, if it's him speaking, the 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 wives should ask their husbands at home, um, and that he might mean that sort of if you opt for a uh, you know a life of marriage and family and child uh, raising and so on, a kind of then you're not eligible for this ecstatic prophetic office, but celibates are. Mm. Um, that is possible, I think. And, um, yeah. Good to be celibate. <laughs> if you <laughs> want to prophesy in the churches anyway. <laughs> yeah. One perk. Um, and then the, the acts, uh, the new Testament itself does not tell us how Paul meets his end, but we have these traditions. I mean, is there a reason to believe that he, he was sort of beheaded in, in Rome? Like, is there a reason to believe that somebody like him would have met that fate? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's plausible that someone like him would have met that fate. I mean, you know, there's, there's, well, even in his lifetime, he is locked up in prisons a lot. Mm. You you know that from the letters, even independent of Acts, and then Acts also portrays him with multiple imprisonments. Uh, and it's not at all, uh, unlikely that, you know, he he would have met, uh, met an end by execution. Uh, I mean, I, you're right. I mean, the letters 
don't talk about it. Although in Philippians, he talks, which is an authentic letter, he talks about thinking he might be executed very soon, which is interesting, because um, he's imprisoned at the time. Uh, Acts, because I think it's written, you know, in the early second century, I think it knows Paul's, Paul, it knows that Paul's died and probably how Paul has died, but it's choosing not to tell us because mm. it wants to end with him kind of handing on a baton rather than making him a, a martyr. I think that's mm. Luke's. Luke, Luke makes a decision that way. Um, so our only sources are second century and later, and they all have him executed. Some say specifically beheaded. And I, th- I think almost unanimously during Nero's reign, hmm. I mean, some of the scenes like in the Acts of Paul have him face to face with Nero himself, which, uh, you know, that is perhaps not likely, but that he was executed in the sixties during Nero's reign almost all signs point that way. So I wouldn't know anything else to speculate, but that, and I, I yeah. yeah. Okay. And what about Spain? Oh, you don't think well, he went uh... over? Oh, I, I, I mean, I don't know if I had to guess, I'd think not because that's the kind of thing that the tradition would, it would really want him to have gotten mm. to Spain because in Romans, he says, I have to get to Spain. <laughs> uh, you know, I, maybe he did, although I, I tend to think that that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, would have gotten filled in yeah. uh, because it needed to have happened. Yeah, it does seem that way. Well, this has been awesome. Um, we've gotten to dig into uh, the the limited history that we can we can know about Paul outside of of the New Testament. But thank you for filling in some of these fascinating details about about first century in this ancient world. Um, Matt, we're going to have to have you back. I know you're also a Messiah guy, so mm. we're going to have to have you back from messiah chat uh, <laughs> all right part two of this conversation fun. but um thank you so much alan thank you again as always and uh yeah this is another episode of biblical time machine thanks for listening and we'll see you next time bye thanks guys